Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning. I'm Allison, and I'm a covenant member here at The Well, and I am one of the shepherds for the Weber East Community Group. And this morning, I'm going to be reading Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 1. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I'd put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you will tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? This is the word of the Lord. All right, bride of Christ, how are we? We ready? Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, well, happy Mother's Day to many of the women out there. Uh, luckily, we are not talking about the sermon that we discussed last week, or else that would have made for some really interesting Mother's Day brunch discussions, all right? Um, and so as we've done each week, uh, I think that's important if you're new, uh, just to begin with a really, really quick caveat. And so if you were not here the first week in particular, uh, I would really encourage you to go listen to that sermon in general, uh, but particularly really the first 10 or so minutes of that sermon, because there's many caveats that we could give about the book every single week. And in order for us to receive some like depth to this book, uh, I think that understanding the book structure or or, excuse me, understanding things like how to receive this as a single person, um, like that will really help us journey through this book well. And those caveats will really aid to your understanding every week. And so 
Today, I'm going to admit, this is probably one of the easiest ones to uh, digest and to follow along to and to keep kind of that, well, what if I'm single or what about my relationship with God? Like, it's the easiest to keep those things in perspective. And so today we're talking about almost an opposite issue of what we talked about last week. And what we're looking at is conflict uh, within relationships. And so even though what we covered last week can create a lot of conflict in relationships, I think that often we're kind of confused as to what to do in the midst of conflict. And so up until this point of the song, the couple feels like they're living in an Eden-like atmosphere where everything is virtually perfect. Sure, there is temptations for the foxes to come in chapter 3, But it also doesn't really seem like the foxes are there quite yet. It's really telling you you need to prepare for if and when the foxes do come. And so up until this point, they are in Eden. But what do you do when the foxes do come in? When they come in either noticed or unnoticed? When they come in intentionally or unintentionally? How do you handle conflict? This couple, at least in this chapter, they exit Eden and they enter into the real world. And because this book is more wisdom than it is poetry, there's a ton for us to glean today about how we handle conflict well. And so here's the premise before diving into the scriptures directly that I want us to kind of wrestle with today is that every worthwhile relationship has conflict. Every worthwhile relationship is going to have conflict. Unfortunately, many of us don't really know what to do when conflict comes because our entire idea of romance or our entire idea of friendship is that of fantasy. It's idealized heavenly states of bliss. And so we're unfamiliar with how to resolve conflict in ways that are glorifying to God and edifying for others. And we don't even see how conflict is actually able to bring blessing if we learn how to handle it rightly. And so, beloved, like understanding that conflict will indeed come and not idealizing relationships and understanding what to do when it does come, like being equipped within those relationships is a key part to making any relationship, particularly the relationship of marriage, work. And since we live in the church, I think that often we live in this conflict avoidant culture that doesn't know what to do if and when there is tension. And so we tend to get confused when conflict arises. That or we don't really know how to fight fair. And we don't really know how to fight well. And that often robs us of all of our love. And what it feels like at that moment is what she feels like in verse six, where it feels like our souls fail us when this conflict comes. And this can lead to great ruin of a romance or great ruin of friendship that was once so beautiful if we do not know how to overcome the fox and how to replant the garden. And so conflict, at least I believe, often causes individuals to only dream and to fantasize about what could be, usually in somebody else's garden, as opposed to fighting for the relationship and the garden that God has cultivated around us. And since we leave relationships so quickly, right, and we don't want to engage in conflict, or we tend to kind of shell up in our relationships, and we don't really want to engage in conflict that way, we miss the restoration of Eden that is possible within every relationship if both parties are willing to put in really good work. Yeah. 
And so because, listen, the next chapter, there's all sorts of beautiful intimacy once again. And so it's proven that just because conflict comes doesn't mean that what we experienced last week in chapter four can't also be experienced in chapter six, but you gotta know how to wrestle with the conflict. You gotta be willing to endure that well. So it is possible if we are ready for it. And I believe that this text gives us some base tools by which to use conflict in a positive way in our relationships, how to overcome it well in a way that it builds up everyone involved in the relationship and even those outside of the relationship, it edifies them as well. And so let's dive into this text, all right, and glean from this wisdom literature. So homegirl Shulamite, uh, Shushu is what the sisters called her on the streets, all right? She was asleep, but then her husband got home and he was trying to practice chapter four again, right? Look, he speaks identical words that he spoke last week, trying to stir up some emotions in her, but look at what it says. It says that his locks were wet, now y'all know y'all can't be getting the locks wet, right? A normal fade, that's cool, but the locks, that'll ruin the drip, all right? And so she ain't having it though at this moment. Like she's like, yo, I got my PJs on, like you tripping, I'm not trying to get my feet dirty and walk across this dirty floor again. They're clearly married now because this is a clear marriage fight. <laughs> Dating people don't be doing this. They're like, yes, honey, let me wake up for you, right? Okay. And so this is something that we see. There's conflict in the midst of this. So several things that we see that kind of set up our conflict. First of all, apparently he didn't communicate really well that he would be coming home late. On this particular occasion, maybe work one over wife. The, the dew in his hair is showing that it's really, really late. Like y'all know when dew comes on the grass, that's the imagery that we have here. Remember, this is all garden imagery all throughout this song. And so maybe the challenge of time management on his end, maybe some mis-expectations on her end, it starts to get to them. But also, she doesn't really put in a whole lot of effort here either. Like, rather than resolving conflict, she kind of hits him with the Elsa. Go away, Anna. Okay, bye. Right? And so maybe there's some frustration on her end. Maybe there's some apathy on her end. Maybe there's some anger, but something is going on in her heart. We see that here, and we'll actually see that play out through the rest of the text that gives us insight here as well. There's something going on. To homie's credit, though, the next verse, he did try. Once again, he was trying to open the door, which some commentators think is a sexual euphemism. Some think it's a literal room. I'll explain why in a moment. It doesn't matter what's happening here. That's not the point of this story. But he's persistent, at least mildly at the moment. So then she too is all of a sudden like, actually, yeah, like, like I ain't mad. Like, come on in. But at that point, then homie left without her knowing it. And so now they're missing communication once again. And then it says that her soul failed her, which is such strong language here. She is devastated at this moment, which goes to show it's not just that homie left, like that doesn't create soul failure. This is imagery about something deeper that's happening inside of their relationship. Then all of a sudden the poem, the song, it takes this wild turn because she goes out to find him and then the watchmen beat her up and they bruise her and they take her veil. Like we have to remember at this moment, it's really important that this is wisdom literature set inside of poetry. In other words, this didn't actually happen. 
We know this because she almost ignores the fact that she just got beat up by people who were supposed to protect her by immediately adjuring the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find her husband. And then she describes him as lovely in verses 10 through 16. And her tone almost takes like an uptick, which would not happen if this was literal. So just like how in previous weeks, we can assume that they are not making love in the middle of a forest in Engedi on a random couch that was made of leaves and branches. And even though Homie really liked long necks, we can assume that her neck was not literally as long as the Tower of David, right? And so here as well, this did not actually happening, but it is pointing us towards something. What is this story pointing us to? Well, the Shulamite and her husband had some sort of conflict and that what she just experienced is what it felt like inside of her soul. It felt like she had been physically violated like her soul was hurting her because of the depth of conflict that they had. Like she could not find him as if he was lost, even though it is unlikely that he is lost in this sort of way. There was like things were chaotic. It was like they were no longer in Eden. They were in the real world. This is what it feels like for whatever the conflict was between the two. And this description of it is supposed to also produce emotion in us. And the emotion that it is supposed to produce in us is, man, conflict is hard. Conflict is hard. It sucks, right? Like, like nobody likes conflict. Not like this. You shouldn't like conflict like this. And yet it is present even in the best of marriages, even in the best of friendships, even in the best of churches, even in your relationship with God, this sort of conflict can be present. And so what is it that you do when conflict arises? Before we answer the question, there's several pieces of wisdom that I wanna highlight kind of underneath the waters of this text. Conflict does several things to us, okay? For many of us, conflict makes it really hard for us to be found. It makes us hide. It makes us shell away. It turns us into Adam in the garden where we are present, but it's almost as if we are no longer there. Both men and women tend to do this. We just tend to do it in different ways and in different forms of communication. But wounded people tend to go into shells often. And the more fragile one's ego, the quicker it is that you go into a shell. Now that's not a knock against anybody's ego, but it is to tell you like something is going on inside of you. If you understand how to deal with conflict, you can understand how to strengthen that. But we tend to hide in the midst of conflict. And so even if they are physically present, it's as if you cannot find them, as if you've lost them, as if they are far away, that's what conflict does. And often I believe that we are unwilling to do the hard work of trying to find them again or make ourselves available to be hurt once again for the sake of the relationship. That's one thing that happens in conflict. Or when conflict comes, we can kind of get passive aggressive at times. Like, how can I get my feet dirty again? Right? Instead of saying, I'm really hurt that you came home late. She's like, I don't want to get my feet soiled which is often translated to the hearer as, you're not worth me putting in effort towards, especially if he has a fragile ego. Or sometimes conflict can turn us into the watchman 
because we get hurt and we don't really know how to fight fair. And so we get hit with a pocket knife by somebody because of their sin, but then we throw a sword back at them in retaliation and we overdo it. That can happen in conflict as well. Or conflict can just feel like straight up missing another person because of bad communication or because of unmet expectations. Like God is supposed to do blank in my life. And if he doesn't do that, then that's conflict between you and the Lord. My spouse is supposed to act like this. And if she doesn't do this, if he doesn't do this, then church is supposed to look like this. And when it messes up, then... And conflict begins to create this thing where we have these expectations and because we lack good communication, we just miss one another. And often we begin to expound that conflict in a way that is unresolvable versus fighting against the grain of the conflict. Every relationship worth fighting for will have some conflict. Missed communication. The man thought that they was finna get it on again, right? She was not really trying to. Maybe because of his sin, maybe because of her sin, maybe there's a mixture of both, who knows? But then she's actually like, actually, never mind, yeah. Like, like, come on in. Now he's the absent one, like missing one another can create this soul failure. It could feel like it is difficult, if not impossible, to get over. Regardless of one of those four feelings that I just mentioned, regardless of our default within the reason why or how we respond to conflict, every relationship experiences conflict. Think within the relationship of marriage. That's probably the easiest one to dissect. You do know that it is not two angels that are getting married to one another. It is two sinners, right? Like when I was single, I thought I was the dopest roommate ever. And then I got married to Natalie and I was like, dang, Natalie's a sinner. She don't realize how dope I am. And then God, by his grace, matured me because I thought I was Timothy and I was like, oh, I ain't him. This is a me thing, right? And the enemy or the fox or the sin in our life, it tries to begin to eat up the things that are valuable. And our job is to overcome that snake and to smash its skull and overcome the sin of our flesh by the power of God that is within us who resolved every ounce of conflict between us and him because he was willing to do the work. Now we have the same spirit of God. You and I can do that work too, beloved. We can work towards conflict in these beautiful ways. And so here's what I want us to see from kind of the opening chunk of this, all right? I think that there are two things that create the most conflict, foxes within marriages or relationships or friendships or even in our relationship with God. And two things, I already mentioned them, but the first one is selfishness. Selfishness will ruin any form of healthy relationship. Notice what we are seeing here in this text. She says, my garment or my feet. I don't want to get my things soiled. Up until now, that word my has been a picture of this extreme unity and oneness. In fact, this is verse two. Remember in verse one, chapter five, where they finally consummate their marriage and nine times in one verse, the husband calls her my, showing this unbelievable intimacy. This is the first time this word my is used selfishly in this song. When the individual is the main focus on any relationship, then conflict will indeed arise and it will be really hard to overcome. That's why the scripture frequently tells us, like Philippians chapter two, verse three, that we should consider others as more significant than ourselves. 
In fact, family of God, if Christ thought of himself more than he thought of you, then there would still be conflict between you and God and you would have no relationship with God. It was because Christ considered you as even more than himself and he was willing to lay down his life. And so I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, even right now in the midst of this sermon, where in your relationships are you practicing selfishness and that selfishness in turn is beginning to create conflict? Because by the power of the Spirit, you can overcome that, y'all. And if both parties are able to think about the other as more significant than themselves and are zealous to maintain this sort of perspective, then we experience Eden-like intimacy. Selfishness is one of the great enemies of relationships. The second enemy I've already mentioned as well, but I think it's poor or missed communication. Remember, he doesn't communicate that he'll be late. She doesn't communicate what she might really be feeling. They miss communication about the entry of the door. Like unmet expectations is often really just poor communication, right? And so selfishness and poor communication, it can create hurt. And often we avoid conflict because our souls are hurting, not realizing that diving into conflict can be the very thing that heals our soul within the situation. So what do you do when your soul fails? Like, like what do you do, literally? Do you hide? Uh, do you throw swords? Do you abandon relationships? Or do you seek to double down on love? Because that's what she did. And for as bad as maybe she was at first in some selfishness or poor communication, her pursuit in the midst of her own personal hurt is one of the greatest examples of gospel reconciliation that we see in the entire Bible. So let's learn from the Shulamite here. Because often when conflict happens, we tend to see the person as an obstacle or as opposition, not as a beloved or as a friend. So now we don't see the individual rightly, and then we don't see them as somebody that is beautifully designed by God as a gift to us. And we are unwilling to overcome the conflict and create reconciliation because we don't see the individual as a stewardship thing between us and God. In our friendships, in our churches, in our marriages. But she does the exact opposite, y'all. She sees the individual as somebody to steward. Notice the community is involved as well. But first, the community is actually involved really poorly. Look at them there in verse nine. They're like, who is your man? Right? Like, like he ain't all that. He ain't it. They don't even say who. They say, what is your man? Like, dog, can this dude at least get a, 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 a who here, right? Um, it's easy in conflict to double down and to be like, oh yeah, skip that fool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Am I talking to somebody? Yeah. Like, notes, friends, be unifiers within marriages and friendships, not sounding boards for gossiping. Don't be slandering your spouse behind their back either, by the way. That's poor communication. You just became the fox in your own relationship. Getting advice and getting counsel from godly people, definitely do that all the time. But getting justification because you feel hurt, that's God's job, not theirs. And so we need to make sure that we are even being friends in the right way, encouraging reconciliation, not trying to encourage division, which is so easy to do when a person is hurt because we're like, oh, we're just caring for them. But in reality, we're feeding these seeds of division, y'all. And that's what Satan does. 
and that is ruinous to marriages and friendships and churches. Let us rid ourselves of that. But these friends, they're not great friends at first. She wants to find her husband and they are hating. The the ground is ripe for further division, but she takes this conflict with her friends and this conflict with her lover and she uses it as an opportunity to triple down on her love, y'all. She is a wonderful picture of the gospel. Verses 10 through 16, she gives this raid of beauty about her husband and she starts off from head to toe about him. He gave eight physical forms of her beauty in the last chapter. She one-ups them and gives him 10 here. She is continuing to pour out love, listen y'all, even in the midst of conflict. Meaning, friends, don't miss the wisdom behind this. When you have conflict with people, they don't stop being beautiful to God. And when you can see them as such, it often helps you to overcome the pain of the conflict and you seek to find them and reconcile them that their soul and your soul might no longer feel dead. We tend to not want to see this. We tend to want to see the bad in people so that we can justify our hurt and our pain. But if we can see the good in people, we then amplify our reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 gives us a piece of this reality as well. It says that, listen, Paul once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but he actually regards him as thus no longer. But the first part of that verse is really, really interesting. In verse 16, it says, For we therefore regard no one any longer according to the flesh. The Shulamite is practicing this. She is not just seeing him as a conflict bringer. She's seeing past that, seeing the beauty within him and is working to try to restore that relationship. And where she may have started off poor, she's also the first person to repent in this relationship. She turns from what she's doing and the person who originally didn't even want to get their feet soiled is now out and about in the city at the night doing whatever it takes to find this individual. That is repentance, it's turning away from what she was doing before. She turns back around, does not take the bait of gossiping in verse nine, or does not give up because of her hurt in verse seven, she pursues still practicing week two of our relational series. And so while poor communication and selfishness tends to be the the weeds within our garden, the remedy for these weeds, family, are really, really simple. It's selflessness and communication. She is searching for him, even though she's hurt and maybe even feels like hiding in a shell. She is re-communicating her love for him, even though she feels wounded herself, like we see in verse seven. She is overcoming the barriers that are hard to jump over because this is a godly woman that is full of Christ-like character. Let me give you an analogy to this, what she's doing here. Uh, Natalie and I recently moved into a new home a few months ago. And in my old home, which we lived in for about 10 years, I never did any work to the garden because I detest gardening. And so my home often looked like Genesis chapter one, where it was void and chaotic and it had no man to till the garden, right? And then I moved into this new home and I was like, I'm gonna try to actually have some good grass for once. And so I started trying to tend to the garden. Y'all, I hate gardening. Like almost as much as I hate the enemy. I hate like being outside. 
It is so grievous to my soul. I don't know why, I just don't like gardening at all. And what happens is, is I put down all of these things in the ground. I don't know half of what I'm doing. I gotta call up my friends, like, yo, am I doing the right thing? Probably not, right? But I'm like creating this ability for all these things to grow. And the irony is the more healthy that I make the lawn, yes, it is easier for grass to grow and that will come, but it is also easier for weeds to grow as well. Do you remember Yusuf's analogy about the foxes not going to a graveyard, but going to where there's already fruits? The same is true here as well. And I believe that this is sort of what conflict is like. Weeds are going to be constantly sowed by the enemy of God. Sometimes that fox is your flesh. Sometimes that fox is Satan himself. Sometimes that fox is the world that is around you. Sometimes the foxes are the friends that are supposed to be helping you. And you have to constantly do the really hard work of continually up uprooting those weeds so that grass can actually come. Because guess what, y'all? In the same way, and the same line that was said every single week, I want us to hear it again this week, relationships are hard. They are hard. It's like gardening. The reason it's hard is because it's hard, right? Like, like it is hard to maintain health. Relationships are even more complex than a garden yard, It is hard to endure relationship. East of Eden, there is always going to be some sort of trouble. And the temptation for us is to run off to where there is greener grass rather than working on our garden. And if you run off to greener grass, another friendship, another marriage, another, another relationship, another church, the grass that is green today, guess what? It is going to get weeded as well. Because we live east of Eden and you yourself still have fragments of the flesh where you actually become a sower of weeds. And so the thing that seems so beautiful can so easily get ruined. And so rather than continually sowing these weeds or running around to different gardens, what if we learn to take conflict, use it as a gift and begin to create beauty in the garden that God has called us in to begin to create life there as well. KB, a Christian rapper, urban theologian, you see the quote there on the screen. He had this simple line in a song about him not pursuing, right, these these other women and instead doubling down on his wife. And speaking about his wife, he said, when the grass isn't green, I give water and seed. She is the league. She don't compete. I don't care what they got up on IG. Okay. (laughs) Weeds are going to come. What does it look like for you to be a garden worker? Like, like to keep the fences up so that the foxes don't eat the fruit. Even to pull the weeds yourself and to get those hands dirty, even in your relationship with God. What does it look like to fight through the conflict as you do this? Look ahead to the next chapter next week. It creates all of this extreme intimacy. In fact, I would argue that overcoming conflict in godly ways actually deepens intimacy when we are willing to do that hard work. And so relationships are hard. And at times it can feel like our soul fails, y'all. And can I encourage you about what to do if and when this happens? Because all of us are gonna feel like verse seven, like our souls are failing at different moments. And I believe that what you do in the midst of soul failure is you look to someone that is stronger than you are and you begin to place your trust in him. See, Jesus is the ultimate picture of how to enter into and how to overcome conflict. 
No relational disharmony that you and I have ever felt will ever come close between the disharmony that existed between you and God. The comparison is not even close to comparable because where you may sin against your spouse once or twice a day in extreme ways, maybe even five or six times a day, each of those sins against your spouse is also a sin against God. But you don't only sin against your spouse, you sin against your friend and in your work and against your church and against your leaders. And every single one of those sins are sins, not just against the individual, but also against God himself. Meaning your sin is stacking up and there is now major conflict because of that between you and God. But Jesus is the ultimate image of what it means for something to feel like soul death and to pursue that anyway. Listen, Jesus is the ultimate beautiful man, is he not? In verses 10 through 16, we see all this beauty about this man, but what it actually sounds a lot like is Revelation chapter one, verses 13 through 16. In fact, if you do a comparison and a contrast here, there are 10 different features in each of the descriptions. Chapter one, or Song of Songs, chapter five, he's all of these beautiful things. Revelation chapter one, Jesus is also all of these beautiful things, but in irony, the details take up this intense fire. So where this man's eyes are like doves, Jesus's eyes are like fire. Where this man has hair like a flock of ravens, Jesus has this hair that extends healing into the nations. Like, like it takes this uptick. Jesus is the true beautiful man. And when reading this song, the Israelites had to have wondered as she's bestowing this beauty upon her man, I know this is poetry, but will there ever be a man that looks like this in all of Israel? And the answer is yes, family, that man did come. A king like this one and a shepherd like this one came. And when there was conflict, Jesus absolved it. You see, when conflict occurred between us and God, Jesus did not hide from us, beloved. Do you hear me? Where there was conflict between you and God, Jesus did not and is not hiding from you. Jesus did not flee. Jesus did not get tired of waiting outside the door and waiting for us to get up out of bed and to enter and to open and allow him in. Revelation chapter three, verse 20, Jesus proclaims this very thing. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock, family. And if anyone hears my voice, like he's still standing there. He's waiting for you to hear his voice. He will come in, you will eat with him and you will be with him. Jesus is standing at the door, friends. And where She did not wanna put on her garment to open the door. Jesus did even better. He took off his garment that he might clothe you in his righteousness, Revelation chapter three also says. And where she did not wanna soil her feet, Jesus would bend down and wash the disciples' feet and become so soiled in his own walking on this earth that those feet would lead him to be crucified, a nail directly through the feet as well. Jesus would become the better Shulamite and the better husband here in this story. And rather than his locks dripping with the, with the wetness of the night, so Jesus's locks were dripping with the blood of his covenant towards you as he was bleeding and dying that you might find reconciliation between you and God. The watchmen did not just beat Jesus up. They did not just bruise Jesus. They did not just take away his veil. They beat him and crucified him and stripped him and they left him naked. And Jesus is now knocking, friends, wanting to come into the door of your heart. 
And if we answer, then the conflict that is between us and God, it's absolved. And you and I get intimacy with God. And because of this family, just as she longed to look into the face of her beloved again, do you know whose face you will see one day? The face of God himself. Because Jesus has made that way possible. Jesus is the better Shulamite. He's the better husband in the midst of us. And now for those of us who have received that gift, we are believers in Jesus. The same spirit that was dwelling inside of Jesus is also now dwelling inside of you. The thing that gave him the ability to overcome and the strength to endure all of the conflict that was between you and God is the same spirit that is dwelling inside of you that also gives you the power to overcome the conflict that is between you and another individual. In fact, if it's true that our sins were way heavier against God and you now have the same spirit, then what type of conflict cannot be overcome this side of eternity? Is it hard? Relationships are hard. Yes, it is hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is possible, family of God, We have the ability to do this. And I believe that as you think about what God has done for you, and as you see the conflict that he was able to endure, then we will be much more motivated to solve the conflict that is between us and others. It's really interesting that uh, she works to essentially be godly in the midst of this poem. And then look what happens at the end of the poem. The others, the friends, all of a sudden they come around as well. Remember in verse nine, they were drinking that haterade? They're like, who is your man, right? And now look at the end of it here in chapter six, verse one. They're like, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Like, let us help you find him. Let us help you begin to seek after him as well. She won her man, which we'll see next week. And she won her friends, which we see there in chapter six, verse one. There's a ton more we can exegete about this passage and unpack. But I went 10 over minutes last week over. So I'm going to, since I overdrafted last week, I'll end really quickly here. Okay. Relationships are hard, y'all. Marriages are hard. Friendships are hard. Church is hard. Conflict is going to come. Can I encourage you though? It is almost always worth it to seek to overcome the conflict. I know that word almost is a big word and we could unpack that for forever. I get it. There are times where maybe that is not the reality because the other person isn't willing to do that work. But notice the man ain't even in the picture. She's the one that won him back. So even where others aren't willing to do that, you should really make sure that you're doing everything in your possibility to live at peace with all men and to work and to work and to work at that. It is almost always uh, possible to overcome conflict. And we've discussed forgiveness, we've discussed community and relationships, we've discussed all that in the church before, and we're gonna discuss it again in the future as well. So I won't belabor the point here. But let me end maybe with an analogy to land us here, since we're doing all this garden imagery and you will never hear me talk about outside as much as I have in this series, okay? Uh, I believe that conflict is a lot like manure, right? Manure is uh, poop, right? Like it's gross. It's disgusting. It's the things that you don't really want. It smells terrible. You like touch it and your whole hand gets filled with it like it's filthy, okay? And so we planted trees in our yard as well because I'm trying to be a better gardener, right? And around those trees, what you do is you put manure around it. 
And if you put the manure around it in the right place at the right time and you give it the right nurturing, that manure actually doesn't kill the tree or make the fruit stank or something, right? Like, no, the manure actually helps that thing grow. Now you can create too much manure. You can literally fill it around the tree and it will actually kill the tree. But if you do it in the right way, it begins to create all this flourishing. What if some of the conflict in your life has actually been allowed by God because God desires a deeper intimacy between you and others and even between you and him, family? And as we learn to rightly apply the manure and to move it around in the right way and to rightly pull up the weeds of the garden and to rightly crush the head of the enemy and the foxes and how to be selfless, I believe that conflict can be overcome and not only overcome, your relationships can get deeper, beloved. And they can be more beautiful as we're willing to endure it. So family of God, endure. Relationships are hard, but Jesus is better. And as you look to him, you have strength to overcome it and you can overcome the conflict that is around you. Amen? Amen. Hey, I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, as we um, work towards kind of the conclusion of this gathering and of our time of worship with you, I just want to pray really specifically, Christ, that I know that so many of us, we feel like the Shulamite in verse seven. It feels like our soul has failed. And what I also know, Christ, is you are able to heal. Jesus, you are able to take what feels like soul failure and you are able to recreate the garden again. Chapter six in the Song of Songs, which we see next week, there can be a deepening. I believe that and I've seen it over and over and over again. And so Jesus, I pray for healing where our souls may have failed and for strength and endurance to maintain to walk in the midst of all of that hardship and to overcome the hurdles and to overcome the feeling of lostness and to overcome the miscommunications and the the bad expectations and, and the selfishness and to begin to try to work towards gospel fruit, Christ. I pray that over every single individual and all of their relationships, Jesus, that we would be a relationally rich people, that we would feel like Eden, that we would feel like Eden, Jesus, I also know that there can be hardship in the midst of a room this large that is just really hard to overcome. And maybe even there's a soul failure, not because of a lack of effort on our end, but even on somebody else's end. But Jesus, I pray that each individual that is in that situation would receive you as God, would receive you. Where others may have failed, you do not fail, Jesus. You step in as our father. You step in as our husband. You step in as our brother. You step in as our shepherd. You step in as our friend. You step in in every single relational dynamic. You proclaim that that is who you are because even if others fail, you do not, Christ. And so while I pray for healing and depth over every relationship, I also pray that where it is out of, our, out of our power to be able to overcome the conflict, that you, Jesus, would step in into every single one of these individuals' lives, Christ. That you would be their God, that they would be your people, and that your name would be exalted because of that. God, I thank you that where there was conflict between us and you, you, Jesus, were willing to lay down your life. I 
pray that each of us would welcome you into our hearts by faith and say, God, I desire relationship with you. And as we do that, that you would give us the power to then walk out that same sort of reconciliation towards others, that we might have beautiful gardens, God. I pray that individually, I pray that corporately, that our church would be a beautiful garden. We love you, Christ. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.